If you are a visitor this morning, I want to give you my warmest welcome. My name is Peyton, one of the ministers here, along with Tracy, who's been leading our singing. And on behalf of our elders, Joe and Mike, we, and our, all of our leadership and our church, we welcome you on this Sunday. And we hope this morning you will hear the reason that we are celebrating. I want to tell you this morning, if you are visiting or if you are a regular, why I think you should consider putting your faith in the person of Jesus Christ, if you haven't done that already. And not just in belief, but also in practice. Here's why I believe you should do that. Despite the bad taste that a Christian might have left in your mouth from an experience, despite the scandal that you have heard over the past couple years happening inside churches, despite any restriction that you have broken free from of traditions you felt like you finally escaped, despite any past experiences that you have had in a church, the reason I think you should strongly consider putting your faith in the person of Jesus has nothing to do with personal reasons and has everything to do with what we celebrate today, of an event that happened 2,000 plus years ago that transcends all time and impacts your life today. You know, it's said for many of us, life has become this long attempt to avoid death. Our calendar is filled with gym sessions when we are young and doctor's appointments when we are old so we can kick that inevitable can a little further down the road. In fact, one of the only times we actually consider our mortality anymore is at a funeral. As we're grieving the loss of a loved one, we might have a thought creep into our mind of one day they're going to be talking about me. Now, I don't mean to just like bring the mood super low super early, but I think it is important for us to recognize the problem so we can appreciate the solution. And man, don't we have a solution for this problem of death, amen? amen. Don't we have a, a solution for this problem of death, amen? Amen. We have a solution. It's where the Christian hope resides, and it's how Paul is going to conclude his letter to the Corinthians if you've been with us as a church, we've been working through this letter, 1 Corinthians, and it just so happens that as we come to Easter on the calendar, we are coming to the conclusion of Paul's letter, and in chapter 15, he is going to talk about the resurrection. All this letter has been is a letter written to a very young church, about three to four years of age at the time of receiving it, and it's a church that is living in a world that doesn't know what it means to be Christian. This is brand new to them. And living with other Christians in a unified body, it's all new. And so Paul hears things that this church is doing, so he puts pen to paper, and he writes them a letter as their pastor, walking alongside them, correcting them and encouraging them on what it means to be like Christ in a world that doesn't know him. And as we move to the end of the letter, we come to chapter 15. And this is Paul's punchline. This is the climax of the letter. He's been building it up to this point, and he says, none of it matters if not for this. I'm going to put it up on the screen for us to read the opening chapter. Got to turn on my thing first. There we go. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can read along. We're just going to be looking at the first of chapter 15. But if you don't have a Bible to go home with, please let somebody know, and we'll make sure we have one in your hands before you leave. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verses 1 and 2, now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you have received, on which you have taken your stand. Okay, we've taken our stand on something. It's this thing called the gospel. It's why we meet here 
We'll get back to that. By this gospel, Paul says, you are saved. What are we being saved from? We'll talk about that as well. You are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. The gospel. What is the gospel? That might be a question that rolls through your mind at different times whenever you read it, or during this time of year, you might ask another question. What is the resurrection? Like, I get what it is, but like, why did Jesus have to die in the first place, and how does that death actually impact my life today? Two questions I want to answer, but first, I want to talk about the gospel, and I want to talk about it with an illustration. Maybe you've seen this, maybe you haven't, but for me, visual, I'm a visual learner, and visuals always help me grasp something that seems abstract from me. So let's talk about the gospel story, and the gospel story, it begins with this person named Jesus, the Christ. This is going to represent Jesus. Now, Jesus was a historical figure. If you believe in God or not, you will have to fight against the history books. I said there was a man named Jesus, he did remarkable things, if you believe them to be miraculous or not. He did remarkable things, and they were so remarkable that hundreds of people followed him and died for what they witnessed he did. Can't refute it for history, you just have to refute its validity in your life. But that is Christ, he's the head of our story. And we at this church, we believe Jesus was born so that he could die to pay the cost for our sin. Because all sin, it costs something to the world. It costs something to you. And whenever we say sin, we're not just talking about what you're doing right now. We're talking about the sin that you have done, the sin you are doing, and the sin you will one day do. And then the last part of our story is you. And I just want you to look. I'll turn you around here. I want you to look at you. I mean, you look nice. <laughs> you look clean and pure. I mean, I could drink you up. That's how good you look. I mean, this is how you were designed, to look just like this. You can see right through it, nothing floating around. You are perfect. The problem is, is that we have all done things that we shouldn't have done. We've all sinned in different ways. And the problem is, and I'll turn this around so you can see, the problem is, is that whenever Whenever sin enters our life, it begins to muck up that clean version of us. You know, that's the thing about sin that we often don't recognize about it. We think sin and us are like two separate things. Like, if I can just stop sinning, then I'm good to go. I'm, I can walk that straight path. What we don't recognize is that sin is not something that separate, is separate from us. Sin is living inside of us. It changes us. There's now elements floating inside of me that don't belong. And we've all done it. We've all done something. And sin, it manifests in our life in different ways. In fact, I want to do a little exercise with you. If you're a visitor here this morning, you do not have to participate in this exercise. In fact, I want this exercise to serve a purpose for you as a visitor to show you that this church, this body of believers that meets here, we don't think we're perfect. Actually, we know we're not perfect. We, we have come here as broken people just like the world to seek something beyond ourselves. And so you can sit back and watch everybody else who's our regular. I want you to be honest. I want you to be vulnerable with each other now. I'm vulnerable with you up here. I want you to be vulnerable with everybody else. 
I'm going to say a couple statements, ask a couple questions. If it's true for you, just give me a thumbs up. Raise your hand real quick, you know, quick up and down. Maybe no one will see you. Just let me know. And I'm going to pour a little bit of our sin into our you represented here. So who here has ever woken up with a bad attitude and hurt somebody that was uncalled for? Who's ever? Oh, oh wow. Okay. Yeah, everybody's like, yeah, definitely done that. Who here has ever gotten mad at their spouse and been disrespectful to them? Okay, I'll add a little bit. Who here has ever lied to a friend or a parent or a, a spouse to get what you want, to cover up a mistake? Yeah, okay. These are going to get a little more real. Who here has ever cheated on your taxes or your tests? Be careful, Tim. Close your eyes, Tim. <laughs> yeah, okay. I saw a couple. Who here has ever hurt somebody or hurt themselves? Yeah. Whatever it might be that you poured into yourself, it's not who you were meant to be. I mean, look, look at you. That's why you feel ashamed whenever you cheat. It's why it hurts you whenever you lie to somebody. Why, why you actually are more hurt whenever you hurt somebody else because things are living inside of you that don't belong there. And God comes down and he sees this mucky version of you and he says, this is not how I designed you to be. I designed you for something so much better and so God sent a rescue plan. And that plan had a name and his name was Jesus. And Jesus was born into the same world that you were born into. Except instead of absorbing sin into himself, he acted like a repellent. It bounced off of him because of how good and glorious he was. But the question that the gospel tries to answer and does answer is what would happen if all of the sins of the world were poured into Jesus? What would happen? And so on a somber Friday, Jesus went to a cross. It's a Roman execution tool. It was a public declaration for the Romans of who the powers to be were. And the gospel says that Jesus absorbed all of the sins into him, and so much so it took his life. But here's the remarkable thing. Unlike us that absorb sin, Jesus absorbed the sin, and he took it to the grave, and he left it there. In fact, he didn't just leave sin there, he left death itself in the grave. He left it behind and he rose up and he remained perfect and blameless throughout the entire process. But here's the sad part of the story. This is often where we stop, where we stop listening, where we stop applying. Is we say things like, you know, that, that's great. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for what Jesus did. It sounds amazing. It's in this book that I, I don't really read for myself and don't absorb, and I don't really know how this story applies to me because I look at this version of myself and I still feel broken. Despite everything great that Jesus seemed to have done, it's still living inside of me. So we come back to you with all the sins, all the distortion inside of you. You have the ability to say yes to this story to say yes to the fact that Jesus actually did absorb all the sins of the world into himself, that he eliminated it. You have the ability to say yes, and whenever you say yes to Jesus, whenever you repent and you recognize your distortion and you are baptized with him, clothed with him, the gospel actually says that Jesus' spirit then pours inside of you 
and everything that was distorted inside of you then is eliminated and made clean. Everything changes and freedom is brought to you. You couldn't remove the distortion on your own. You've tried. The world has given you band-aids for bullet holes, trying to give you a solution to the problems that you feel. But no matter how hard any of us try, we constantly fail. We constantly fail to remove that distorted coloring that makes up our life. And so we have to trust in something beyond ourselves, a power beyond ourselves, a power beyond the world. And that, that is what we're talking about when we say the gospel. That is the story. That's what you have access to. In fact, Paul will continue and he'll tell his version of the same story. Verse 3, For what I received I pass on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, one of the first people to betray him, and then he appeared to the twelve, his closest friends, who also betrayed him. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of our brothers and sisters at the same time, a large witness. Most of them are still living, Paul says. You can go ask them if you want, though some of them have fallen asleep and passed away. Then he appeared to James, his own family, then, all, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me, Paul also, as to one abnormally born. That is the gospel. And that is what we celebrate today. But I still haven't really answered that question. Is like, what, what about this thing that still is living inside of me? How, what is my next step towards this? You know, I'm not a mechanic. I know very little about the working of an engine. <laughs> uh, flat tire, I can change it in 15 minutes flat. I can get it taken care of. Windshield wiper fluid never goes empty on my watch. I can take care of that. One of my most recent accomplishments that I'm really proud of myself for is I can change the oil in my vehicles. I did it in my 87 Jeep Wrangler for many years. I did it in my wife's older minivan. Felt pretty confident. So I thought, you know, I'm going to try a newer vehicle. A couple weekends ago, I have a 2016 Toyota Tacoma, and I thought... I got this. I read, I watched YouTube videos, I watched the manual, and I thought, I can take care of this. I thought. <laughs> Here's the video from my mechanic after my attempt. Good afternoon. This is Steven from Toyota Vero Beach. I'll be performing your service and inspection today. When I did check the engine oil on the dipstick, it appears that you have 12 quarts of oil in the motor. So uh, what I think happened is somebody has drained your transmission and it lost about four quarts of fluid and then they double filled your oil um, so what I'm gonna suggest doing right now um, is draining anything that's left in here we're gonna have to wait till the vehicle cools down uh, to do the proper uh, level on it and then we're gonna have to fill it up adjust the fluid level uh, and then I'm gonna have to perform it in an oil change to make sure that there is not uh, in fact 12 quarts of oil in the crankcase because that is not good either uh, and then we'll go from there the oil level is up to here. Uh, it should be down here. That's why I believe that you do have 12 quarts in the crankcase and that the transmission has been drained. Thank you for choosing Toyota Vero Beach. Your service advisor will be with you shortly about these recommendations. Have a good day. Somebody has done this. <laughs> so if you need your uh, transmission fluid drained, I can take care of that for you. Here's my point. You cannot put something where it does not belong. No matter how confident I was, 
that I was putting, I was draining the oil can and putting oil back in the tank. I was putting all my trust in something that was ultimately false. And that might be why the gears of your life are shifting erratically. It's why whenever you go into the world, you still feel anxious, despite everything the world gives you, why you still feel sad or depressed or angry, everything the world gives you that they tell you will be the solution, why it doesn't seem to solve the problem. If you want your life to work at its optimal capacity, you have to pour into yourself what is actually true. What is actually true. So what I want to talk to you about this morning is what is actually true about God's relationship with you. Despite what you've heard, despite what you've come in here believing, I want you to hear what's actually true. N.T. Wright, he's a uh, biblical scholar. He breaks down three options, two that aren't great and one that is true. And I want to break down those options for you because not only is it going to give us insight into what the world believes, what you might believe, but it's going to give us insight into what is true and how it connects to the resurrection. Let's dive straight into those options. We're going to spend the most amount of time on the first one because this one seems to be most potent in our culture. Option one essentially sees God and me as the same thing. That these two realities are so overlapped that it's from within myself that I can actually generate my own truths. You know, what's ironic about this, this option is that it breeds both humanist and spiritualist alike. Since I know my audience, I'll stick with the spiritualist side. Spirituality, as defined by our culture, is turning inward and a focus on our own religious experiences as a matter of central experience, or a matter of central interest, essentially saying, what I come to church to do is to get what I need to make it through the week, to fill up, to hear what I need to hear. And this self-interest of our faith is beginning to erode our faith entirely and what we do here. You know, one of my, uh, my pastor friends, we were talking about this subject, he talked about an encounter he had with one of the members of his church. It was after service, and she comes up to him and says, Pastor, I just want to let you know it was a great lesson. Uh, I did want to talk to you about a couple of the songs that we sang. I didn't know a couple of them, and I, I just didn't really get connected. I was wondering if we can make some changes in the future. And my friend said, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. And she's like, no, 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 don't worry about it. That's why I'm coming to you. We can fix it, and we can move forward. And he said, no, I'm sorry. What I'm sorry about is that you thought what we were doing here was for you. Ooh. Okay, maybe a little crass in his response, but I don't think it's far off from how Paul talks to the Corinthians, telling them that no matter how deep they dig, they will never find truth within themselves. No matter how high they elevate themselves, they will never be good enough. Truth has to come from something outside of me or else it's not true. It's my truth maybe, but doesn't make it actually true. It's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth in the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. I want to break this down a little bit further for you because this modern identity, this finding truth within me, it is plaguing our societies and our cultures. Author and pastor in, uh, Tim Keller, he talks about four cracks within modern identity. Number one is Modern identity is incoherent, that you might be able to find truths deep within yourself, desires deep within yourself, but how do you know 
which one to choose over another. He, he builds up a hypothetical situation. He says, imagine that you have this desire, this truth to pursue this certain career, but you also have a desire deep within you to marry this woman you've fallen in love with. What happens whenever you find out those two truths can't live at the same time? Sometimes our truths are incoherent. Sometimes our truths are illusory. It can, it can breed and create a phrase like this. You know, quite literally, everybody in the world thinks I'm a monster. But I like the way that I am. You can see, you can see the danger that creeps into it. Modern identity is crushing in a new world that idolizes the rags-to-riches story, a new weight is being put on the human soul. We live in a culture that tells you that you can discover and create your truest self within you, but then that same culture idolizes winners and demonizes losers. Which one are you going to fight to be and be crushed whenever you don't match it? And then finally, modern identity is fracturing. We no longer place value on the communities that we are in. Instead, we place value in the liberties we can laud over our communities. Our private life, who we have sex with, how we spend our income, where we spend our leisure time, none of it is anybody else's business. And marriages, households, friendships, and yes, even local churches are eroding under the weight of individualistic preferences. So option one, not a great option for us. This one will be much quicker. Option two, this perspective of God and his relationship with us is that us and God are two different realities that may be true, but they are completely separate from each other. Ironically, this worldview might be a lot closer to many of your beliefs in here. Within this option, Christian ethics, simply meaning what we as Christians determine to be morally right, has been boiled down to us just struggling to obey a code of law that's been published by some distant deity that I don't really have a relationship with. Within that worldview, sin has been broken down to merely mean breaking the rules of the book, and salvation simply has been boiled down to the rescue of a distant deity who plans to destroy those who disobey this book. I once talked to a friend of mine who held on to that worldview, and he said, you know, honestly, I don't even know what I believe, but I hold on to my faith as an insurance policy. You know, whenever I retell the story of the gospel, I can't imagine that's the relationship God wants to have with his creation. So then we have to depend on a third option, and these are oversimplified just for clarity, but option three recognizes that God and the world are very different from each other, but they overlap with each other. We get hints of this in the Bible. You can see it at the very beginning of your Bible. Garden of Eden is one of those overlappings, when man and human could walk together at one time. Another overlapping in your Bible could be something like the temple, when man and God could come together in a single place. Another overlapping was the story of Jesus in the Gospels. When Jesus came to defeat the evil forces that exist in the world and to blow open the doors for God's new world to be born, to completely overlap. And when we appreciate this view of God and his relationship with his creation, 
we can now appreciate what is actually happening in the resurrection. You see, option three serves as a launch pad into a very Christian way of life. Not a way of life that is about getting in touch with an inner depth. Not a way of life that's hyper-focused on obeying the rules of a book of a distant deity that I can't have a relationship with. We're talking about a new way of being human that's Jesus-shaped, that's cross and resurrection-shaped, that's being filled with the Spirit-shaped. To close up and summarize our options, use the words of N.T. Wright. He says, Christian ethics is not a matter of discovering what's going on in the world and getting in tune with it. It isn't a matter of doing things to earn God's favor. It's not about trying to obey a dusty rule book from long ago or far away. It is about practicing in the present the tunes we shall sing in God's new world. Being a Jesus follower means dying with Christ and rising again. We see that modeled in the practice of baptism, actually. I love the practice of baptism because it's hyper-focused on renewal of my presently corrupt state that I live in. And two major things happen in baptism. A lot of things happen, but there's two major things that happen. One is that you are actually rejecting the culture standard of self-fulfillment. You're saying, I can't do this on my own. I actually need a power beyond myself. And so whenever you go down into the water, you are actually being buried just like Christ was buried. You are completely submitting yourself saying, I can no longer be mine. I need something better than me and what the world can offer. And then whenever you come out of the water, you're not denying your humanity, but you're actually rediscovering it. The resurrection of Jesus, it enables us to see that God doesn't have a plan to reject you. He has a plan to renew you. He wants to restore you, to make you clean and pure, just the way he designed you to be, to wash you clean. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but what? But Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave his life up for me. As a conclusion, I want to make sure I really answer this question. The question that still might be itching in the back of your mind as you hear all of this and yeah, maybe you want to recognize this story as true, and you, you do want to experience some kind of transformation, but that question is still nagging, why was the resurrection necessary? How does it actually impact me today? And I want to tell you right now, the resurrection is necessary because it forces me to depend on something outside of my inner depth and my inner abilities. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, I can experience a hope that I'm unable to obtain on my own. You know, above all, the gospel story is a, is a story of radical grace. And the resurrection, it's one of the very few things that you cannot produce, you cannot control, and you cannot manipulate. The resurrection is deeply personal, absolutely necessary, and decisively outside of me. You know, on the night Jesus was betrayed by Judas and Peter and basically everybody else, 
Jesus experienced a condensed version of what every single one of us will experience in some way in our life. Suffering and loss that leads to death. Jesus lost everybody that he loved those last hours. He lost his status. He lost his dignity. He lost all modes of movement and any freedom from suffering. And eventually, he lost his life. Why did he do that? Why did he do it? And he talks about this in the last supper he had with his disciples. A meal that we replicate and model and meditate on every single Sunday here. And you got to participate in it a little bit earlier. Jesus broke bread and he poured wine and he said, the same thing is going to happen to me. My body will break, my blood will pour out, and I'm doing it for you. But why? Why did Jesus do it? And I think he revealed that best through his life and his teachings. You can find that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The story of Jesus' ministry, his walk on earth with us where he says that the essence of God and the very means by which we should be living is love. Suffering, sacrificial love for the well-being of the other. Jesus loved our world in the state that it was in. That's why he suffered and died for it, because he loved it that much. Jesus became what we are so that we could become what he is. And that is why the empty tomb is for all of us. It unlocks not only my own personal destiny beyond death, but it was the future of humanity that walked out of that tomb. And it spotlights for us where our real hope is. Not a false hope, not the things or the people that we don't know what we would do without, but our real unshakable hope. And it's a hope that can remain unshakable because it's not based on a feeling. It's not based on a desire. It's based on an event that happened in human history. The resurrection is not a symbol like flowers blooming in springtime to give us hope for life. Our hope is grounded in a man named Jesus who conquered death and rose from the grave. And I wish I could give you the mountains of reasons that you can believe and trust in the historicity of that event. But here's the point. It's only through the resurrection that humanity's greatest fear and greatest problem finds relief. Paul talks about it at the end of chapter 15, where he quotes Isaiah and he says, O oh death, where is your victory? O oh death, where is your sting? No matter what the world offers you, it can't offer you life. It can't solve the ultimate problem. It can make life great right now, but it can't save you from death. And I get it. Sometimes the idea of death, it scares me too. I'll lay awake at night looking into the mysterious abyss of what happens next, and I'm scared. And I have to remind myself, sometimes on a daily basis, that my life because I'm in Christ, doesn't end in death. It ends in eternal life with my creator. And that is why the resurrection is necessary. That's why that something happened that happened 2,000 years ago still has significance for us today. It's why it was critically important that Jesus died. Jesus needed to die to show us that he conquered even the greatest enemy that plagues every single human. 
Death had no grip on Jesus. Therefore, death has no grip on you. That's what we celebrate today. The Christian hope, the empty tomb, the life eternally found in our Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for those who have come here today to hear this remarkable story of what your son did for us. Father, it's not something that we earn, that we're able to pay for, that we're able to, to earn with good merit. God, it was something that was freely given to us, but we have to accept it. We have to recognize the distorted version of our life. We have to want, desperately want something better than the world offers, and we have to take it, accept it, allow your spirit to pour in us, be baptized and clothed with you. So God, I pray for anybody in this room who's on the edge, who doesn't know, who has questions, who is scared, who feels overwhelmed. God, for us who have been faithful and need to be reminded of the story every single moment we can, God, I pray that each of us will take a next step. Whatever that step is, dusting off our Bible, renewing the covenant that we've made with you, talking to somebody about baptism, praying and repenting with somebody, or God, just allowing this message, this story, this hope to rest on our weary soul. Jesus, you said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I, I will give you rest. God, we need rest. We need you. We celebrate this morning the hope that we find in the empty tomb and the life eternally it gives us with you. And in Jesus, our Savior, we offer this prayer, the risen Lord. Amen.